April 22nd, join us for a special live episode of Manifesto, a podcast, with special guest Vincent Cunningham to discuss Pope Francis, Fratelli Tutti, and Jackie Sibley's Dury's play, Fairview. Event held virtually through the Fairfield University MFA Program's Inspired Writers series. Details will be posted on our website. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing commandments. Your guides for this journey are the writers Phil Klein, along, uh, <laughs> and sometimes Jacob Siegel, who unfortunately cannot make it today, uh, as well as their trusty engineer, the great Adam Kamara. May you continue to be a person. Today, we have a very special guest, the um, professor of the humanities and history at Villanova, Eugene McCarraher, author of the new book, The Enchantments of Mammon, and also the author of our manifesto today, A Providentialism Without God, The Case Against Meritocracy. I uh, am particularly excited to have Professor McCarraher on. I discovered him years ago with an essay he wrote called Remarks to Christian Infidels in the American Empire, um, uh, which told uh, uh, Catholic veterans like myself that, quote, there are idols to be desecrated, priests to be ridiculed, an unholy trinity of guns, machines, and money to be identified and blasphemed. With a harsh and dreadful love, we must disparage the martial and pecuniary faith that animates history's richest, most well-armed, and parochial superpower. It's time to realize that the American empire is a sacral order, a more beguiling and frightful incarnation of the earthly city described by Augustine in the City of God. It worships a triune god of Caesar, Mammon, and Mars. And um, I think that uh, uh, we're going to discuss uh, <laughs> one one component of that sacral order today. That? Is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yes. And uh, and then I, uh, I read his essay, We Have Never Been Disenchanted, which we might just talk about a little bit more. By the way, before we actually get into the essay, do you want to just give a brief gloss on your book? Because I think it might be helpful to people to understand a little bit about your the intellectual work that you've been embarking upon, which is really about a kind of imagining of, of sure. Uh, well, first, of all, thank, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's it's a great opportunity um, to talk about uh, well, not just why meritocracy is bad, but uh, yeah, I guess in this sense, why why mammon is so evil. Um, my book is is basically an attempt to demonstrate that uh, Max Weber got something wrong. Uh, in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, uh, where he talks about what he calls the disenchantment of the world, which is a, a phrase that he borrows from Friedrich Schiller. But um, so part of the argument in Weber's book is that uh, capitalism, uh, especially under the auspices of the early Calvinists, uh, disenchanted the world, meaning that it it was uh, a major force in stripping uh, away from the world any sort of conception that it was inhabited or controlled by, you know, invisible spirits or, or deities, right, of any kind. Um, and that basically the world became disenchanted or secularized, right? And this has been one of the 
you know, most prized heirlooms of modern intellectual life, uh, that, you know, we've all become secularized in one, in one shape or, or form. And, you know, I just basically think that's wrong. I, I, I think that uh, money uh, has become a, a, a sort of moral and ontological touchstone where uh, where God previously was, and uh, what what the secularization has been is is in many ways a kind of uh, a kind of guise for that. Um, it's it's concealed what what I think is a deeper what I call misenchantment uh, as opposed to disenchantment uh, in in uh, capitalist modernity, and I think this this is a process that has been going on since. You know, I, I think the 16th or 17th centuries, and in many ways, I think it's reached its nadir in um, neoliberal capitalism. Uh, and, you know, even though the essay, the book review slash essay in Commonweal uh, on meritocracy isn't, isn't, I guess, directly related to that. I mean, it, it does uh, it does identify what I think is one of the latest um, institutional and cultural incarnations. Uh, of that that sort of obeisance to mammon, uh, you know. I mean, one of the one of the arguments I make in the essay is that this word merit, uh, you know, which often goes very curiously undefined, uh, it, it it's really a way of masking a, a kind of subservience to money and power, which which I think really is what merit means uh, in 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 everyday life. You know, there's a, there's a there's a line from there's a, there's a bit from uh, an essay of yours called "We Have Never Been Disenchanted." Um, uh, we say, having drowned religious faith in the Arctic of pecuniary reason, money by becomes the almighty being, the truly creative power, the de facto ontological basis of reality and capitalist uh, civilization. Um, uh, the power of money in bourgeois society extends further and deeper than the market in commodities. Like the God of Genesis, it brings things into being from nothing and consigns all indigent objects and desires to the void of non-existence. If I have the vocation for study, but no money for it, I have no vocation for study. That is no effective, no true vocation. On the other hand, if I really, if I have really no vocation for study, but have the will and the money for it, I have an effective vocation for it. As the metaphysical common sense of market society, money defines and even bestows all manner of qualities. I am stupid, but money is the real mind of all things, and how then should its possessor be stupid? Money can even buy you love. I am ugly, but I can buy for myself the most beautiful of women. Therefore, I am not ugly, for the effect of ugliness is deterrent power is nullified by money. Like the fetishes of tribal peoples, money confers extraordinary powers once believed to belong to shamans, priests, and gods. And... um Merit is one of those things that you can buy, isn't it? Right, right. Money, money may not. Uh, money can buy you love. You know, the Beatles were wrong about that uh, in, in in capitalist culture, uh, but it also seems to be able to buy you merit, uh, as as all of these uh, books that I, that I reviewed uh, demonstrate. The merit and wealth seem to be very, very closely correlated. Um, yeah. So. I, I th- this is one of the reasons why I think that uh, merit is in many ways such a fraud. Uh, it's it's really just another word for already being wealthy. You know, Michael Sandel, uh, one of the authors whose books I'm reviewing, even refers uh, to contemporary American higher education as uh, I think what he calls an elevator in a building that most people enter on the top floor. Right. 
you know, I mean, I, I think that pretty much sums it up. Right. So let's, uh, maybe we should start, well, maybe we should start where you start. And, and uh, I'll note again, folks can read this essay. Um, it's in the latest issue of Commonweal. Um, and actually for our, uh, for our art that we're pairing with this, uh, this manifesto, uh, we're going to be doing Goya's uh, The Sleep of Reason Breeds Monsters. Uh, and that uh, there's also a, an excellent essay on, uh, uh, on Goya uh, in that same, same common wheel. So you get a two for one uh, uh, if, you, if you pick up the local, local uh, issue of common wheel. But you begin with uh, a 1958 dystopian novel. Um, called The Rise of the Meritocracy by Michael Young about a workers' revolt uh, in 2034 against the meritocratic system in which advancement comes from still skill plus effort, um, but has succeeded only in producing the most insufferable ruling class in history. Um, why, why did you begin with this? Um, I mean, it's a fantasy in which the meritocratic ideal is less obviously corrupt than it is in, in the current day, right? Oh. Well, well, yes and no, right? I mean, one, well, one of the reasons I decided to open with that uh, book is that uh, since I was reviewing books on meritocracy, I figured why not go to the Ur text, uh, yeah. which, which is uh, Michael Young's novel, um, which, I, which I'm pretty sure is, is, he coined the term meritocracy. And uh, one thing I think it's important to say at the very beginning, and I don't think enough people realize this when they, uh, if they've never encountered the book, is as as you say, this is a dystopian novel. Uh, you know, you right. you would think from the from the title that he's he's writing about something that uh, in the end would be affirmed, but in fact, it becomes very clear very quickly uh, in the novel that no, we're we're in dystopian territory here. Um, you know, I should say a little bit. I didn't. Uh, I threw in a little bit about Michael Young himself uh, in in an original draft, and you know, for space purposes. Mm -hmm. But Michael Young himself, uh, in the 50s, was an up-and-coming labor, uh, I guess we could say today, policy wonk. Uh, you know, he was very much on the left wing of the Labor Party. You know, the sort of an Iron Bevan, uh, you know, Tony Benn uh, side, of, side of things. And Young himself was becoming very, very disillusioned with the way that, uh, you know, labor politics, capital L labor politics was developing in the 50s and 60s. He was... He was very much afraid that even the Labor Party itself was beginning to move away from a sort of traditional concern with working class interests and um, and with dem establishing democratic socialism and evolving into basically a kind of middle class party, which was which was more concerned with the with the interests of you know professionals and and managers, and I. Part of the reason that he wrote this book was to uh, express and, and I guess really ventilate, you know, those those concerns. Um, yeah. So the the novel itself, you know, it starts off with the character, the the, the protagonist is quote Michael Young, yeah. uh, and it's and it's written as a kind of um, it's written as a kind of dissertation, and uh, this is one of the reasons why why Young had difficulty getting the you know, the book published because people read it and thought, oh, this is a dissertation. Nobody's going to read it. <laughs> uh, you know, I can't and, imagine why. Yeah. yeah, I can't imagine why, right? And so finally, I think it was Thames and Hudson, uh, you know, actually, you know, took a chance on it and, uh, and they published it. And so, you know, it starts off 
where, you know, the protagonist says, yeah, you know, there were some really great things that that meritocracy accomplished. Right. I mean, it uh, it, uh, it 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 overthrew, you know, an order in which, you know, birth and money uh, determined one's access to education, healthcare, you know, and all these other goods in life. Um, it it was very successful in substituting science and reason for superstition right and and uh you know kind of victorian moralism uh you know in other words it it opened up society in in many many good ways um against uh, you know caste and inherited privilege but the problem as young makes clear is that very quickly these meritocrats themselves become just a really haughty and obnoxious uh new kind of ruling class and one of the reasons that they're so haughty and obnoxious is that they really believe that they're they're the thing, right? I mean, they are they are the best. They are not just intellectually superior, but they're in many ways existentially superior, uh, you know, to everybody else. Uh, and so that's why they become this just incredibly insufferable ruling class, you know, in in. Because and, and also because they think they they've gotten what they deserved, right? Right. You know, I got I got the high SAT scores. I got the GRE scores. I got the gold star on my essay in second grade. And so, in other words, I worked my way up. Uh, you know, it's a it's in many ways it's a kind of classic bourgeois. Pull, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, kind of a tale. Right. You, you write equating worth with credentialed intelligence and convinced by the impeccable testing regime of their own existential preeminence, they reckon that their social inferiors are inferiors in other ways as well. Right. Um, and by the way, you know, one thing that I, I have noticed because this is, this is obviously very, very current in, in American society right now. Um, I noticed something, you know, I was having a, a conversation with a friend. Uh, he's not a college graduate. Right. Mm-hmm. And and he mentioned something to me, um, which was almost a carbon copy conversation of conversations that I've had with other friends who have not graduated college, where he was saying something along the lines of, well, you know, I have family members who graduated from college. Uh, I have a family member with like a graduate degree, but I'm making more money to, than them in, you know, he's a, a blue collar profession, right? Um, and... Um, and so, you know, I, I thought it wasn't so smart to, you know, to go down that route and it, I've had that same conversation multiple times and it doesn't, it never feels like bragging. Uh, it feels like a preemptive defense against, um, being judged. Right. Yes. Um, because they're perfectly well aware that, uh, other people will subtly look down their noses at them or somehow assume that because they didn't graduate from college, they're not smart or in somehow some of the way, not uh, a social equal. Yeah. I th- no, I've had very, I've had similar conversations with, uh, you know, members of my own family. Uh, yep. And uh, as well as, you know, friends and, and colleagues who've, who've, you know, related similar sorts of stories. Yeah. I think that to some degree, uh, People who haven't gone to college, you know, in other words, people who haven't even gotten on the meritocratic ladder, you know, in any way, yep. have have to some degree internalized 
uh, this this kind of a sense that you know if I didn't go to college then I'm somehow uh, not just not not as smart as you know somebody else but that I'm not as good as somebody else. And this, you know, this sense is reinforced by, I think, college-educated people, especially people with advanced degrees. Uh, I think this is reinforced every day. Uh, it's, you know, it's certainly reinforced uh, in higher education. Uh, it's certainly reinforced in our politics. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, I mentioned uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in the essay as uh, two you know, sterling examples, uh, you know, of this, of this kind of meritocratic liberalism, which, uh, you know, I think has gone a long way toward creating the conditions for the success I, I, of Donald Trump. I mean, Hillary's response to her loss, um, I remember she said, I won the places that represent two-thirds of America's gross domestic product. So I won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, and moving forward, Right. Um, well, certainly that's true if you're among the top 15%, you know, of, uh, on the income ladder, that's certainly, which is just a wildly contemptuous thing to say about, you know, uh, and it's, it's, it's dividing up the worth of America. I mean, very grossly by money. Yes. By, yeah. I mean, literally by gross domestic product. Right. I mean, this is not, this is not, you know, uh, this is not something that is just a, you know, it's not exactly winning strategy, is it? (laughs) I mean, and the, you know, and the funny thing is, right. I mean, first of all, you know, not only is it, is it incredibly condescending uh, and contemptuous, but it's, it's so out of touch with reality. Uh, This, this is what I think uh, is one of the major problems with a lot of these, uh, with a lot of meritocratic liberals is that they, they really do live in some sense on another planet. Uh, you know, not just, not just in terms of, uh, their, their material comfort, uh, and, and their wealth, but just the, you know, the sort of people they hang out with every day, you know, I mean, you can, uh, you know, you can tell a lot, I think about somebody by who they have lunch with. Uh, and, um, you know, when you, when you hang out with other PhDs or, you know, MDs or MBAs or, you know, whatever alphabet soup of meritocracy you're in, um, yeah, you know, that's, that's going to shape your worldview. And, you know, any, anybody who's not part of the club, uh, is, um, is, is in a sense, your existential inferior. Um, yeah. You know, there's a. Political scientist Judas uh, Sklar has a book, 1989, American Citizenship, The Quest for Inclusion, right? And she argues that you know, to be an American citizen, you're actually you're a member of two kind of interlocking public orders. One of them is egalitarian and the other is totally unequal, right? So if you're a you know, recogn- recognized active citizen, you have to be an equal member of the polity, a voter, but you also have to be independent, right? Which she says, means you, he must be an earner, a free remunerated worker, one who is rewarded for the actual work he has done, either more or less. He cannot be a slave or an aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, um, you know, the American work ethic, which seems so odd now, becomes perfectly comprehensible when it is understood not as a reflection of the class values of pre-industrial artisans, but as the ideology of citizens caught between racist slavery and aristocratic pretensions it is endured because the political conditions to which it responded from the first, uh, to which it responded from the first, have not disappeared, right? Um, and that, 
you know, that is one of the main sort of sorting mechanisms um, for for status and, and then worth, right? Right. The way the way in which uh, you know meritocracy, I think, tries to resolve this is through this notion of equality of opportunity, right? Right. Uh, so what you, what you get in that phrase is an attempt to reconcile what I think are two fundamentally irreconcilable things, which is social mobility, uh, you yeah. know, ability, in other words, to go up the, the class hierarchy, uh, with, with equality, right. With some, with some notion that, uh, in the, in the polity that we're all supposed to be equals. And I think as all three of these books, you know, make, make very clear, you can't reconcile those two things, right? Uh, because equality of equality of opportunity is basically a way of saying we're going to give everybody a chance to scramble over each other up the ladder, which right. means that it's it's basically a liberal a liberal way of accepting inequality. Uh, and and so, I think that equality of opportunity is one of the is one of the greatest ruses, uh, you know, in in the history of liberalism. Uh, you know, and Sam Dell, I think, does a very good job of saying, look, better the vision of somebody like the historian Christopher Lash, you know, who, who once said that, uh, wrote that, um, you know, the ideal we should have in a democracy is not so much uh, mobility, right, social mobility, as it should be a diffusion of knowledge uh, among, among everybody. So everybody has has access to education, uh, you know, and healthcare, and we don't turn it into this meritocratic scramble, which, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially become now and, and whose rewards I should add, um, are becoming, uh, ever more meager, <laughs> right? right? One, you know, one, one of the things that, uh, you know, especially David Goodhart points out is that, you know, one of the things that meritocrats are doing ironically is automating themselves out of existence, uh, you know, because as as they created this new knowledge economy, uh, that new knowledge economy is is increasingly powered by all kinds of uh, AI technology, which is making knowledge workers more and more obsolete. Right. So, in a sense, you know, a lot of these meritocrats are now too smart for their own good. Yeah. The um, too smart for their own good. Um, <laughs> uh, they've been educated for a system that doesn't have spots for them. I mean, you know, within academia, that's particularly, uh, yes. particularly apparent. Right. Yes. Um, and then, uh, you also have, I mean, I think, I think it's Sandel who talks about just the way that, um, the demands of meritocracy sort of, uh, uh, here you go. Merit- uh, meritocratic asceticism deforms the young from an early age, imposing what Sandel characterizes as soul-destroying demands. The right kindergartens and elementary schools, the expensive tutors, prep courses, and counselors, the obsession with grades that preclude or pervert any love of learning for its own sake, the extracurricular activities pursued for the resume rather than for pleasure, the internecine combat for placement in advanced academic tracks and classes, the college essay, application, interview, all designed to be perfectly suave and inoffensive. It's hard to see how any passion for beauty or capacity for defiance could emerge from so joyless an education, the wellsprings of poetry or revolution having been so thoroughly dammed up and poisoned. Yeah, um, Sandel uh, describes many of the students that he sees at Harvard uh, and elsewhere as wounded warriors, or I'm, I'm sorry, wounded winners. Uh, 
Wounded um, winners, yeah. Yeah, you know, he's his book, I think, should be read in conjunction with uh, William Derizowitz's book uh, from a few years back, Excellent Sheep, uh, or, mm-hmm. which I think Sandel draws uh, to some degree. Uh, and, you know, in both cases, what they're describing is a really spiritually disfiguring uh, and, and crippling process by which, you know, all the joy of learning is basically beaten out of these students, uh, you know, from a very early age. Uh, and, you know, by the time they get to, uh, you know, not just the Ivy League, you know, I mean, I see this at, at universities uh, that aren't that aren't Ivy League. I, you know, I see it at Villanova, you know, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. You know, these kids, these kids arrive and they are so test prepped and they are so um, they're so deferential. You know, I, I, I sometimes say to students, you know, you should be more disrespectful <laughs> of what, you know, what a lot of us of what a lot of us are saying. You know, I mean, you, you don't you don't seem to have any you seem to be afraid, uh, you know, to contradict anything I or many other people say, you know, what's the matter with you? And 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 one of the things that. Um, that becomes very apparent is that they've been schooled, you know, since elementary school to, you know, defer to teacher because teacher gives you the gold star on your, on your paper. And uh, that's going to get you a good job someday. So, you know, you'd best, you'd best shut up, uh, you know, stop, stop reading so much poetry and, um, you know, get with the program. So you, in the, in the essay, you trace a sort of um, <laughs> theological and, and kind of literary lineages of the, these ideas, the kind of uh, the moral theology of just deserts, right? Which is, which is behind, um, you know, behind the meritocratic system, right? If, you know, I've got 10 starving people in a bear pit, pit and I toss them some meat, you know, one person emerges after the brutal fight that ensues with the meat and everybody else, I, you know, they don't deserve it because, um, you know, they could have fought harder. Education, right? education is Thunderdome. Yeah. That's, yeah. And that's, that's, that's fair. Uh, that's how, that's how society should be structured. <laughs> um, and you say this moral theology of just desserts took a Christian form with Pelagius, the patron saint of overachievers, who maintained that human beings were perfectly capable of freely living lives of righteousness. Yet Greek tragedians such as Euripides contradicted Plato's alignment of talent and reward, while for Jews and Christians, the book of Job dispelled any delusion that fortune was commensurate with merit. The whole point of the story is that happiness and hardship bear no relationship to virtue and vice. The point is underscored in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus informs the crowd that God sends the sun and rain on the righteous and the retrograde alike. alike. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Uh, uh, yeah, meritocracy, yeah, what, what I... What I mm-hmm. you know, after I talk about Michael Young and, and, and all that, I, I go into something of a genealogy of, of uh, meritocracy. Yep. And, you know, you see this, for example, in Plato's Republic, right? where you've got these philosopher rulers or sometimes called philosopher kings who, you know, they go through a meritocratic uh, regimen, right? I mean, they're, they're supposed to be physically fit. They're supposed to be philosophically adept. Um, there's a kind of recondite epistemology, you know, that you see in the, in the Republic where only a few people uh, can actually aspire to the knowledge of the capital F forms, you know, and all this. 
And uh, these, you know, these people, while they live ascetic lives, uh, you know, they're not they're not graced with a lot of wealth the way contemporary meritocrats would be. They get to rule the republic, uh, you know, because they, in a sense, pass the tests. Uh, yeah, and you, yeah, you see this in the uh, in some of the early Hebrew scriptures, right? The idea that well, if you're good, then God's going to reward you, right? Uh, if um, if you follow the Torah, you'll be you'll be prosperous. And you know, you see counterpoints to this in in both ancient Greece and ancient Israel, right? You know, Euripides, you know, who I mentioned is is. Yep. Uh, is definitely in, in 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 many of his plays trying to make the case that uh, no, you know, you can be a good person and you can still end up in you know pretty horrific circumstances. And uh, you know, this is the same with Job, right? You know, Job's a good guy; he's he follows all the rules, and he ends up, you know, being uh, with a catastrophe where he, where he loses everything and. Um, but I think I think where this really, in a sense, takes a turn is once again with the Calvinists, uh, you know, and I never miss an opportunity to beat up on Calvinists. Uh, and, and so uh, <laughs> uh, so I'll take I'll take another opportunity now. Right. Go, go for it, please. Go. Uh, so you get, um, you know, Max. And again, I think Max Weber does a great job in the Protestant ethic of explaining this. Right. So you've got. Part of Calvinism, of course, is the idea that, you know, you've got the elect and you've got the damned and the elect are sort of yes. like the 1% of, of humanity. But the thing is, right, you don't know which is which. You don't know which one you really are. Uh, and so one way that Calvinist uh, ministers and theologians would try to allay this kind of anxiety in people you know, was to say, look, if you work hard and, uh, you know, you accumulate wealth, yeah, you shouldn't enjoy it too much, but, uh, you know, you accumulate wealth, but that's probably some kind of a sign or a token, right? That, that God, uh, has, has, you're in the club, you're in the club. Right. Of the and over time, as, you know, as the Calvinist theology kind of wanes, you know, over, over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, this basically becomes a, uh, th- this gets transmuted into, well, you know, if I'm successful, um, you know, that must mean that I'm virtuous. Uh, and, and increasingly, as in, 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 these, in these new kinds of corporate and technologically advanced forms of capitalism, that success increasingly depends on acquiring educational credentials. Uh, yeah. You know, this is, this is something that you start seeing in the late 19th century, uh, with the development of what I call the educational industrial complex uh, in the United States. You get these, on the one hand, you're getting the rise of these new bureaucratic, um, uh, technologically sophisticated corporate corporations. <clears throat> and you're also getting the rise of the modern university uh, around the same time. Um, and, and basically what happens is the corporations gradually decide, look, um, what we're going to do is we're basically going to outsource training our workers to universities. Um, you know, that the university is where we're going to train the managers, the engineers, the technical specialists, and, and the scientists. Um, and that's one of the reasons, for example, why you get, you know, business schools. It's why you get um, the particular kind of bureaucratic uh, 
institutionalization uh, that, that higher education now has. Um, and this, this process especially takes off after the Second World War uh, under the, under the, uh, under the aegis of uh, Harvard University's James Conan, right? And again, you know, I mean, what, some of the reforms that Conan instituted at Harvard University were, you know, quite commendable, right? I mean, the, uh, you know, Harvard and other Ivy League schools up until about the Second World War were still basically just finishing schools for the male wasp elite. Uh, and it didn't matter how much of an idiot you were, as long as your dad was able to pay the bill to get into Harvard or Yale, then you went uh, and you just got the gentleman's C, as they used to call it. Well, Conan, you know, Conan didn't like that at all. And so he instituted this new sort of merit based uh, form of uh, form of access to to Ivy League schools. You know, he was in very much in favor of standardized testing, um, merit-based scholarships, you know, the whole apparatus of, or at least the, the, the initial apparatus of meritocracy. And, but the problem is, right, that in doing some of these very commendable things, Conan also created and augured uh, a new kind of injustice, <laughs> right, a new kind of oppression, where, uh, you know, he very consciously says, look, I'm, I'm about equality of opportunity. And that means that uh, if you don't make it up the ladder, then it's your fault, fella. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you deserve your, your lot in life, whatever that is. And it's, you know, again, and, and what it does is it reinforces this idea that if you're not successful, it's your fault. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, it's funny, like the sort of anxiety about whether or not you're truly in the elect, right? That, that those theologians, that those sort of pastors, Calvinist pastors were trying to, you know, cater to their flock by consoling them about that anxiety. That anxiety continues in a different form, you know, just with, yeah. <laughs> in modern, among the yeah. modern elites, right? It's, it takes a form, it takes the form that you see in uh, Derizowitz's Excellent Sheep. Uh, it, right. you know, it, it takes the form that you see uh, described by Sandel uh, and other recent writers on meritocracy. It, you know, it becomes so. You know, the 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 anxiety shifts from "Am I saved?" to "Am I smart?" I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart. Like dumb. And I want respect. Uh, right. It goes from am I am I going to be among the damned to am I going to be among the uncredentialed and therefore low income? Yeah. Uh, so and you, you, you talk about Freddie DeBoer's cult of smart, right? Yeah. Um, and how you know, smart now describes the mode of governance preferred by neoliberal elites, right? Which is especially manifest in the Demo Democratic Party establishment, who conceive of politics as the management of popular obeisance to meritocrats. At the heart of smart power, smart people, Hillary Clinton once proclaimed, Barack Obama used smart over 900 times to describe his timid and Pluto-fawning policies, right? Um, and uh, smart beckons to the supersession of democracy by a benevolent aristocracy of meritocrats, defining moral, political, and ideological issues as problems of technical technical or managerial know-how, meritocratic politicians abandoned an antiquated rhetoric of justice and fellowship and seek to abort political struggle in favor of compromise, bipartisanship, and the finessing of market forces. 
And one thing that I thought about was a sort of, um, you know, there was the, the uh, Joe Biden slogan, um, uh, you know, science over fiction, um, you know, very offensive to me as a fiction writer. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but it was, it, it was incredibly annoying to me, you know, like sort of sitting in listening to the, you know, New York city, uh, school chancellor saying over and over again, you know, for school openings, we're going to follow science, not science fiction when they're not following the science, right. There's a, you know, there's a series of negotiations going on in between sort of powerful interest groups, political calculations, the demands of parents versus, you know, the reason that, you know, daycares are opening and the schools are not in person is not because there's more or less risk for, you know, first graders versus, you know, nursery school kids, uh, but because the daycare workers don't have a powerful union protecting their interests, right. And advocating for them. Right. Right. Um, and so the invocation of science becomes a sort of way of saying whatever we decide is right. Um, yes. Even when that's not actually what's happening. And that sort of those indications of, of you know, smartness, you know, I mean, the Barack Obama uh, foreign policy of don't do dumb stuff, right? Uh, do lots of evil stuff, but don't do dumb right. stuff. Um, yeah. which, which is also, you know, I think they also did plenty of dumb yeah, stuff. It's but fine, you know, if it's smart, if it's smart to send drone missiles, uh, you know, to kill innocent people, that's, I guess that's what you right. do. The, you know, um, it, it, I mean, the, the sort of er example for me is withdrawing from Iraq, declaring an end to the war, and then when ISIS rose, um, reintroducing troops, but lying to the American public about the fact that we were still at war and that the war was continuing and that we were steadily ramping up military involvement uh, every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and one of the, the things that you point out is, you know, meritocracy has... Um, has failed in many ways. We have these extremely credentialed people in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and yet, uh, you, you say, you know, there's the global war on terrorism and the collapse of capitalism in 2008, followed by the fragile, inequitable recovery against the backdrop of four decades of stagnant wages and increasingly precarious employment accompanied by an upward redistribution of wealth towards capital and its corporal stewards, a flagrantly corrupt, dysfunctional, and plutocratic political system. Um, so, uh, suggests that, you know, <laughs> whatever else our elites are doing, um, they're not, they're not being successful <laughs> for the, no, the broad they, base of the American yeah, public. This meritocratic, right? this meritocratic regime has just given us one catastrophic failure after another. Uh, and, you know, and, and you have to wonder at some point, you, you, you smart people are really dumb. You, you, you smart people are really stupid, uh, and and in many ways you're you're craven. Uh, you know the one of the things that always that always used to that still actually sort of rankles me about uh, you know people going on about Hillary Clinton's resume, uh, you know, and how smart you know Barack Obama was. That if if you pay any sort of close attention to that resume, to the particulars of those resumes, they're awful. Right. I mean, you know, Clinton, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, voted for the invasion of Iraq, you know, and then later justified it by saying, well, I didn't get a chance to read the whole the whole bill. Well, what kind of a meritocrat doesn't read the whole bill? Right. You, um, you teach in higher education and you don't 
you're not familiar with elite students not reading the whole assignment. Oh, yeah. oh that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, that's true. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, yeah. This this uh, this is one of the main reasons I think that we shouldn't be crediting this meritocracy at all. Is that it produces just one failure after another, uh, and 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 how how do we try to deal with these failures? Well, we just bring in the same meritocrats, uh, you know, who created the mess because, of course, they're smart and they'll know what to do. Uh, in Mike, in Michael Young's uh, novel, right? The meritocrats are, I mean, in Michael Young's novel, it's a, it's a more fair system. I mean, the, the, the degree to which, you know, SATs are, are correlated to, with wealth and then people want to get ris- rid of the SATs. The schools that do that tend to rely more on essays, which are even more correlated with wealth. Um, you know, there's, there's just, you sort of look at all the different ways of people trying to get around it and sort of like, well, you know, in selecting elites, it seems to be that people with money and power tend to leverage that yeah, funny how to passage pass it pass it on to um, uh, to their offspring, and the um, you know one a, a tremendous amount of energy goes into well, how can we make the kind of equality of opportunity thing more fair since it's so flagrantly not right right? But uh, in the Michael Young, and this seems to be much more along your lines, is that the problem is not wholly vested in the selection mechanism by which we pick an elite, but rather the structure of the society itself and what we value. Um, And, um, and what happens to everybody who is either not elite or, you know, not going to be, I should should mention, you know, I I don't get the sense you're a huge fan of the U S military, but one benefit of having served as an officer in the United States Marine Corps is coming into a place where there are a bunch of people uh, without college degrees who are going to assume that you are going to be an idiot who doesn't know anything, but thinks they know something. <laughs> you know, that is what an officer is. And, and I do think that more, um, more American elites could, could, uh, uh, uh could benefit, uh, from realizing, uh, <laughs> that they have to prove themselves in that way. You know, one of the interesting things uh, it seems to me about the, about the, uh, the U S military, you know, as an institution is that um, it's, it's, it achieves many of the goals of say diversity much better than higher ed. Right. I mean, higher ed is always going on now about diversity and inclusion. And I, you know, I always say to students, you want to see two organizations that have more diversity and inclusion than a, than a university, go to the U S military and to the U S labor movement. Uh, you know, uh, you're, you're going to see a hell of a lot more racial diversity there than you will at a lot of these still, that is still the case of many of these meritocratic institutions. Oh yeah. I, I totally agree with you there. So in, uh, in Young's book, there's a revolt, right? Yes. And the revolting workers argue, who would be able to say that the scientist was superior to the porter with admirable qualities as a father? The civil servant with unusual skill at gaining prizes is superior to the lorry driver with unusual skill at growing roses. Uh, were we to answer that question, honestly, they conclude there could be no classes, right? Um, and so uh, the kind of thrust of the book seems to be that 
the whole way of, of thinking uh, about meritocracy, which has a certain common sense logic to it, right? Um, in its inception leads to uh, a system that is uh, unequal in a different sense, right? Uh, and unfair and, and, and unjust in a different sense and dehumanizing in a different sense. Um, and that a sort of more capacious uh, sense of, of, of worth. And, you know, there it does a kind of thing where it's sort of saying like, well, you know, there's a scientist, but then there's like the good father. And that's, that's true. Um, but I also think, you know, part of the issue is, you know, the, to succeed, to get into the American elite um, in the kind of normal educational credentialed way, requires mastering precisely those sets of things the American elite um, values, right? And I think one of the, you know, think of, you know, something like uh, Marie's The Omni-Americans, right? Where he's talking about how people like to talk about Black Americans as if they are failing, right? Along all these measures. Whereas if you look at the sort of scope of U.S. history in terms of contributions to the things that, that, um, that give people pride in America, right? And if you look at sort of contributions to the broader culture of America, the, the Black American tradition is um, hugely disproportionate in its impact. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones argues, you know, in, in, in the 1619 Project, in terms of um, embodying those ideals that we claim um, to uphold, right, that are supposedly our source of sort of pride and moral righteousness, right, that the contribution of Black Americans um, is, you know, disproportionate, right, radically disproportionate, right, uh, to the percentage of, of, of the body of Americans. Um, and yet, in terms of the sort of, uh, you know, throughout history, not just that there's sort of an impression, but there are these kind of all these metrics by which you could sort of try and look at them and find the Black American community to be wanting, right, according to, uh, you know, the, the, the social science technicians that Murray rails against, right? right? Um, uh, and so, you know, to me, it's not just that um, there are moral qualities uh, that are valuable that, you know, beyond sort of meritocratic uh, qualities, but that we're not even particularly good at judging the qualities that will be useful to the flourishing of the Republic, right? Um, yeah, we, one, of the, one of the problems I identify with meritocracy, or actually I, you know, through, right. through all these authors identify, is a, is a, a, an impoverishment of, um, an impoverishment of imagination, really. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's, there, there seems to be only one kind of cognition that meritocratic elites value, and that is, you know, the sort that can be measured by you know, standardized tests, uh, you know, yeah. there's, there's, there's a lack of uh, cognitive diversity, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways there's, uh, you know, David Goodhart, uh, especially, uh, talks about this, the, the devaluation of manual labor, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the idea that, um, you know, there, there might be something actually 
not just profitable, but there might actually be something uh, intrinsically worthwhile about, uh, you know, carpentry uh, or, um, you know, (laughs) growing roses for that matter. Or the, the intimate, right. the intimate relationship between the maker and the thing, or the caregiver and the person, blur the distinction between subject and object, enabling the self to become more capacious by uniting it with something outside of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more yeah. than head work, which often alienates us from the delights of the physical world, the labor of the heart with the head affords us the pleasures of being imminent. They also rely on the unquantifiable quotients of emotional and corporal intelligence, knowledge of the texture and contours of feeling or the resonance of the tangible world. Yeah, one of the problems I think with with, uh, our meritocratic elites is that their knowledge of the world seems to be so uh, endlessly abstract. Mm -hmm. And thin. Yeah, or it's pecuniary. Right. I mean, everything gets everything gets translated into into numbers for these people Um, and especially numbers, you know, having to do with money, but just but just numbers in general. And and there's no or there's very little uh, appreciation of, you know, the tactile, sensual world. And I you know, I, I think this is really dangerous. Uh, you know, this is this is one of the reasons why I I think that uh, you know writers like Matt Crawford, you know, for example, are really you know, <laughs> and so to speak, touching on something very very important, which is you know there is a world outside your head, uh, you know, and one of the ways you experience it is to is to actually touch it and manipulate it with your hands and 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 uh, you know feel feel in your heart. Um, you know, I, and it goes back to something else. You know that I that I mentioned earlier, which was um, this increasing aversion among students to want to not just major in in literature, but to but to even want to read it with any with any care. I mean, you know, they're yeah. they're very good at memorizing poems, for instance, but um, what actually actually diving into a poem and asking, well, how does this thing work? You know, what is it? What is this poem saying to you? What is it doing to you? They, it's very hard uh, because they've been, I think they've been so well educated uh, in the arts of, really in the arts of avoiding, you know, these yeah. kinds of issues. Uh, so, you know, you yeah. reduce a poem to something to memorize and, um, you know, maybe you'll read some of the criticism about the poem, but you won't actually respond to it. Right. right. Without, without this whole screen of literary criticism uh, that, you know, that gets gets uh, between you and, and the text. Um, yeah. One of, the, one of the formative experiences for me as a reader, I was part of a, a reading group at, at, at my high school uh, run by a great teacher named John Connolly. And we were uh, reading a Flannery O'Connor short story and we were uh, far in the circle uh, and we were trying to kind of define the theme, you know, like we'd been taught to, right. So so, so that the story could be safely discarded. Um, And we couldn't really do it. And he said, okay, stop. (laughs) This reading, this story was an experience. What was that experience like? You know? Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you were talking about the sort of being imminent, being in the world and, you know, there's a, a very interesting article, also commonly by uh, Massimo Fagioli, called "Identity Crisis" about the Catholic University. Of course, Catholicism, in theory, you know, it's like this, this kind of sacramental view of reality. Um, our physical nature 
uh, is such an important thing. There's a reason you you know you go into the church and there's bells and there's incense that 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 all of one's humanity is there, and that not all of one's humanity is is in one's head. That that is an incredibly important thing. That God is embodied. Um, and he talks about how, you know, like many schools, there's this kind of pressure this, um, to uh, to fit in a model of kind of corporatized model of, of, of higher education that is um, uh, leeching those markers of Catholic identity that are not sort of most directly utilitarian. The capitalist culture of today's university model puts the business school in a central place and outsources moral responsibility to business ethics programs, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, he's sort of urging a kind of choice um, in terms of actually committing to a distinct identity that is outside of the um, the um, uh, just kind of bland, you know, where do you fit in the in the rankings, right? right. Uh, thing that defines so many other universities. Um, yeah, a lot. I, I read Massimo's article. Uh, yeah, he's a colleague of mine at Villanova, and uh, I I couldn't find anything in it <laughs> to, to you know with which to disagree. Um, it's he's he's absolutely hit the nail on the head as far as um, you know saying that the the business school is now basically the ideological and institutional pivot uh, of not just Catholic higher education but higher education in general. Um, you know, I'm someone who for a long time has thought that business schools should be abolished. Uh, you know, when I when I talk to students, uh, and believe it or not, I do teach a lot of business students. Um, they will tell they will tell you quite openly that uh, most of the stuff they learn in business schools they can very easily learn on the job. Uh, there's no there's no reason why you have to have business schools. I mean, there's a I could go into the whole history of that why in fact you do have business schools, but um, according to, you know, the denizens of the business school themselves, uh, you don't, you don't really learn a whole lot there that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't learn in a couple of years working at a firm. Um, And so, you know, you have to wonder what, what, what the hell is a business school for? (laughs) And, and, and really, I mean, you know, the answer is is quite obvious, right? I mean, uh, the, the reason you have a business school is meritocracy. Uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's a way for the university to get money. You know, let's be quite up, up front and honest about this. Uh, and it's, and it's also a way for business to, um, you know, as I said, offload some of its costs. You know, and, and one of the funny things about that too, you know, thinking of, um, I think it was Trinity, um, where they made the SAT optional for students because they found that, uh, grades tend to detract alongside the SAT for college performance. Um, there were outliers. Uh, the outliers, some outliers whose SATs were higher than expected, given the grades, some who were much lower. Mm-hmm. The higher than expected tend to be higher income kids. The lower than expected SAT scores tended to be uh, poor kids, uh, usually from, and, and also more often from black and brown households. But they found that when they uh, accepted those kids into the college, their performance matched that of their peers. So the SAT was just a kind of outlier. And so by allowing a, you know, um, an option that could bring in more kids from poorer backgrounds who would perform just as well. 
And so in terms of the mission of the school, you know, and, and fulfilling a kind of Catholic mission that was uh, good for the school and caused sort of, you know, success within the school, but it caused the rankings to slip. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've long been an advocate of uh, abolishing SATs uh, and, yep. and standardized testing. I, uh, you know, I, um, at Villanova, I'm sometimes on the, uh, what's called the presidential scholarship committee. Right. So I'm, I'm the guy who gives out the, you know, the big bucks. And, uh, you know, one of the things of course that we look at uh, are SAT scores and what I have mm-hmm. long found Right since I started doing this in the mid uh, the mid aughts, was um, the almost complete disconnect <laughs> between SAT scores and what I would read on essays, you know, and 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 it became very clear to me this this is the these scores were definitely being coached the the these were right. definitely the product of these very expensive SAT tutorials. Um, because these kids would be coming in with like 750, 800 SAT scores, and then you would read essays, which were not bad, but they, you know, but they certainly didn't suggest that, uh, you know, these, these kids had 750, 800 SAT scores. Right. And I just started to think, well, this whole standardized testing thing is just a great big boondoggle, uh, yeah. you know, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be um, paying any attention at all to this. But they, you know, I, I don't see, I don't see any point in the future, uh, certainly in the near future, where uh, colleges and universities are going to just, you know, jettison SATs or ACTs, you know, or whatever else, or what other other, you know, kinds of metrics, you know, that they want to use. Um, and this is, and also, you know, I should say, you know, this whole uh, metric and rubric sort of stuff is now filtering into the evaluation of faculty. Uh, not right. just of um, not just of, of uh, students, you know, wanting entry, but um, you know, we we in higher ed, we're we're increasingly the subject of this kind of um, metric surveillance, you know, of of the sort that um, that Michael Young describes in his novel. Um, it's uh, you know, dystopia is here. It's <laughs> not just it's not just something in the future. You know, we we've already arrived. So one one of the things that we do in the show is sort of say, okay, if you, if, if we're going to take this manifesto seriously and live out the implications of this, what does that mean? And so, you know, what what does that mean for you? What is what is this critique of meritocracy on a kind of philosophical level, on a practical level, on a moral level? What does that? What sort of action does that provoke? Well, I mean, I guess, I guess, in some sense, I, I, I'd answer it on two levels. I mean, one, one would be a kind of immediate, everyday, proximate level, um, and, and on that score, I guess I'd say, look, <laughs> once once people like me in higher ed realize that you know we ourselves are part of the problem and that we're complicit, you know, in this, what does one then do? Well, one tries as as best as one can to you know, push back against these kinds of meritocratic values and, and meritocratic uh, institutions to the extent that you can. Um, you know, that's a, I know that's a kind of individualist uh, sort of, mm-hmm. uh, sort of response. And I don't think that it's, 
in the end, I don't think it's adequate, which then leads to my, you know, sort of meta critique or my meta, you know, view of the future, which would be, I would like to see job training and professional training uncoupled from university education. Uh, uh, Sandel talks about this to some degree and uh, as does DeBoer. Um, we need to, we need to make the the stakes of university education less that you know it yes. be less important. Uh, you know we should have more polytechnic institutes uh, as as they do in Europe. Uh, I think um, um, we should more give, powerful labor unions as well. More, more right. powerful workers. I mean, this is something that De Boer I think is really strong on. Uh, right. You know, if workers controlled their own workplaces, they would also control access to those workplaces, which means that they, you know, workers have to reclaim control uh, over over technical knowledge, over managerial uh, prowess. Um, and, and, you know, and, and one thing that I think not just workers, but, you know, people in general, uh, you know, need to be less mystified about is this thing called expertise. Um I think that one of the one of the clear lessons of a lot of the labor history and a lot of the business history that's been written over the last uh, thirty or forty years is that these these words like complexity and expertise mm-hmm. and innovation th- this is this is really a rhetoric of of fraudulence yeah it really is. Uh, you know, all managers and professionals and meritocrats have to do is say that oh, things are really complex and we need people who are trained in the complexities of expertise. So much of this stuff that is considered to be specialized knowledge and, and complexity really isn't. You know, it, it's it's people people can pick up these kinds of skills very, very easily if you give them the chance. Um it, that's all just a kind of mystical ruse that, uh, that, that people throw over this kind of stuff to, to justify their own power and, and authority. So, yeah, I think, I think very key here is, is the revitalization of a labor movement whose, whose ambitions would be much uh, greater than yeah. higher wages and better benefits. You know, I mean, look, I'm, I'm unapologetically a socialist like uh, De Boer. And so I, you know, I, I think that labor unions need to be a lot more ambitious uh, than they have been. But the funny thing, too, but that what you, what you just said about breaking down barriers to allowing workers to do things that are that credentialism is used to restrict them for is that there are also resonances with libertarian thought there, too. Right. Well, yeah, um, the idea that oftentimes certain types of, of credentialism is a sort of veil for um, extracting rent. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't take it as far as libertarians, you know, and say, neither would I. <laughs> I don't really think we need to license doctors, you know, you know, that. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I do think that. Um, you know, I, I would like labor unions in some sense to go back to the sort of medieval model of guilds, right? Mm-hmm. And, and guilds, guild, yes, guilds controlled access to trades and professions, and rightly so, because, right, I mean, you're, you, if you want somebody to practice a trade or, you know, a profession or an occupation, then, you know, he or she should know what he or she is doing. You know, and, you know, and who better to, to judge one's proficiency? than fellow practitioners. Uh, yeah. now, you know, we can, you know, we can debate about whether, 
you know, various kinds of occupations might need licensing and others don't. Uh, I'm not, I, I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have a dog in that fight really, but um, I think the principle is still a sound one. And, and I think what, uh, like I said, I mean, I think the last 30 to 40 years has demonstrated, excuse me, is that meritocracy is not the way to go with this. It, it simply produces meritocracy produces nightmares. <laughs> well, that is a good bridge. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's how I intended it. <laughs> to our art, um, which is Goya's The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters, number 43 from Los Caprichos, a, uh, a series of... <sighs> I mean, how would you even describe these? Um, uh, wow. Well, I think there are, what, 40? How many of them are there? I think, 80. There are I think there's 80. 80 of them. And yeah. this one, I think, is the 48th, uh, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Number 43. Number 43. Yeah, it's in the middle. Well, I mean, I'd certainly describe, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the sleep of reason produces monsters as... Um, it's ambiguous, I think, and it's more ambiguous than I, I think more most people realize. Um, it's it's a figure with his head at a desk, uh, yeah. his arms are crossed, his head is is down, and then behind him there are these there are owls and bats and uh, sort of two ominous looking cats yeah. um, uh, with a sort of dark background, and then on the desk is written um, "El sueño de la razón produce monstruos." Uh, and that sueño can mean sleep or dream. So it's sometimes, sometimes the the sleep of reason. Sometimes it's the dream of reason. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's kind of a, a turning point for Goya as a um, as an artist. Uh, uh, there's the article in in, in Commonweal Shades of, uh, of Suffering by Andrea Andreas uh, notes that uh, in 1972 Goya became extremely ill. And had he died right then at the age of 46, he'd be remembered as a competent Rococo painter with realist tendencies, but nothing more. Instead, his illness transformed him into an extraordinary artist, one marked by great emotional depth and inventive formal technique. And this um, uh, Los Caprichos, which came out uh, at the end of that decade, um, are you know one of those turning points. And they're very strange series of prints. They're sort of satirical but you don't always know what exactly this target of satire is or these kind of grotesque figures alongside realistic figures right. um witches and and all sorts of monstrosities it's uh, a, with these it i think it's a very ambiguous kind of turning point for goya right yeah especially if you uh, if you focus on on that particular etching um because that etching is usually understood uh, or taken as Goya's affirmation, right, of the Enlightenment, right? Right. Um, you know, rationality and science and, you know, the sober evaluation of evidence. And, you know, and if one, it falls asleep, then monsters yeah, appear. Right. Yeah. So when, yeah. right. When the vigilance of reason is, uh, is in any way relaxed, you know, the idea is that uh, you're going to end up with madness uh, you know, and violence and evil. And, uh, you know, so, you know, the owls, I, in, in, uh, according to Spanish folk tradition, you know, owls are uh, symbols of folly and mm-hmm. bats are supposed to be symbols of ignorance. 
And so, you know, in one reading, it's a pretty straightforward uh, celebration of, of, of the Enlightenment. But, you know, I mean, if you do a little digging, uh, you know, as I did, what you, you know, what you discover is that, is that Goya actually included another caption, uh, you know, for, the, uh, for this etching uh, in which he says, uh, imagination abandoned by reason, right, produces impossible monsters. United with her, she is the mother of the arts. Now, you know, imagination was this word that was often used by uh, capital R romantics uh, in the late 18th and uh, early 19th centuries. Uh, And, uh, you know, just to do a shameless promotion of my book, the, you know, the romantic, the capital R romantics are the heroes of the mammon. And, um, by the way, you know, John Ruskin burned a copy of Los Caprichos. Oh, really? I didn't know this. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I think he, he was uh, he was horrified by it. Um, you know, hmm. um, I think does, I, I don't really. Does he write about I, this part? I wasn't able to find it. I only discovered it like last night. So I wasn't able to, to dig more. Maybe somebody knows. Um, just, it was a sort of aside in an essay by Nicholas Penny. So as you can, it's easy to understand the horrified response of someone with profoundly humanitarian feelings who's also mentally unbalanced. Um, he was unlikely to, and this is, I think, uh, key that Ruskin would have seen the disasters of war and the bullfighting etchings as belonging to entirely different categories as Hughes seems to, it's a, it's a review of the Hughes biography of Goya and that there's not, um, you know, there's not a kind of stable place when you're looking at these drawings where you can sort of feel I'm on the side of reason and I'm condemning these sort of monstrosities. So there's a kind of pleasure that Goya is obviously taking in these monstrosities that they're reflecting something that he wants to explore artistically, visually um, the kind of moral argument of the piece is not always so clear uh, as one would like to. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one way, you know, to look at this is to think that the real horror stems when, when reason and um, reason and imagination are somehow severed from one another. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I, I mean, I think that's, that's really what, what romantics are talking about when they're talking right. about imagination you know, when we when we hear the word imagination, we usually think fantasy, uh, you know, irrationality or something like this. And that's not what uh, romantics meant at all uh, by this. Um, in fact, there's a great line uh, from from Wordsworth, uh, you know, where where he says that imagination is uh, in his in his words, reason in her most exalted mood. Uh, you know, so I, I think that one of the great things about the romantics is that they, they were not against the enlightenment, which I think is another uh, stereotypical way to, to view romantic poetry and painting uh, and literature. I think what romantics were trying to do is, well, I, I think fundamentally what they were trying to do is somehow recapture what used to be called a sacramental imagination uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that they inherited from, uh, from the Middle Ages. Uh, and, but, but doing it obviously in, in some kind of a post enlightenment fashion. Um, I don't think, I don't think most romantics were irrationalists at all. What, no. what, they were cons- what they were concerned about is, 
you know, reason severed from the rest of one's humanity. Uh, you know, you, you see this in somebody like William Blake, uh, you know, yeah. where, uh, you know, he's got one of these spirits in his poetry, Eurizen, right? your reason. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, Eurizen is an evil spirit. You know, Eurizen is, is the spirit of absolute, unbridled, instrumental rationality. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I think that, yeah, absolute unbridled instrumental rationality creates its own kinds of monsters. Uh, you well, know. It's also, and I think it's related to our earlier conversation about it's what you can measure, right? So um, what is quantifiable? So, you know, we're talking about libertarians. Um, Hayek has this sort of famous argument about price, the price system, right? And price as a piece of information, right, that um, sort of fluctuates according to all of these things that cannot be categorized by a central planner, right? Um, the decisions of innumerable producers and consumers all sort of cooperatively create this thing, the price, which conveys a very simple piece of information. And, um, and he's correct about that, right? But there's, uh, you know, Ruskin uh, has this sort of insistence, there is no wealth but life, right? And I think one of the questions like, okay, yes, you have a stripped down bit of information, <laughs> but what that we humanly value is being stripped out in order to, you know, you know, <laughs> what of importance um, to human flourishing, right. In a very direct way um, is, is not included in that piece of information. Yeah, this, is where, yeah, this is where I think say romantics like Ruskin and Blake, uh, you know, they, they join hands with Frankfurt School Marxists like Adorno mm -hmm. and Horkheimer, you know, who, who talk about this in the Dialectic of Enlightenment and, uh, you know, Horkheimer in that book of his The Eclipse of Reason. Yeah, there's this, there's this concentration on instrumental rationality, on, on maximizing efficiency, on reducing the entire world and even eventually one's own inner life to things that can be quantified and that can be measured and that can be technologically mastered. I, I think, I think this leads again and again to disaster. Uh, you know, not just, not just, I think personal disaster, but to some of the most violent and, and vile kinds of political behavior. Uh, all of which then becomes justified as being smart. Mm -hmm. uh, or it's, uh, it's, um, it's justified, you know, not just not just in the language of you know raison raison the raison d'état, you know, as it as it used to be, but uh, well, you know, this is this is the smart thing to do. This is the intelligent thing to do, um, and it just leads again and again to to untold misery. Uh, and, and Aldous Huxley has a nice bit on this particular um, this particular image. Um, Reese's, uh, it's a caption, the dream of reason produces monsters, it's a caption that admits of more than one interpretation. When reason sleeps, the absurd and loathsome creatures of superstition wake and are active, goading their victim to an ignoble frenzy. But this is not all. Reason may also dream without sleeping, may intoxicate itself, as it did during the French Revolution, with the daydreams of inevitable progress, of liberty, equality, and fraternity imposed by violence, of human self-sufficiency, and the ending of sorrow by political rearrangements and a better technology. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that um, sort of dual 
um, uh, interpretation is, 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 is a good way of, of, of thinking about the image. Um, and then just beyond that, I think it's a kind of pleasure and monstrosity that Goya gives us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is a sort of reminder uh, of, of the kind of depths and complexities of, uh, of, of human beings and what we, what we appreciate and find beautiful. Yeah, which is something that meritocrats uh, simply can't wrap their heads around. Uh, that uh, I mean, the, the the politics of meritocracy and the culture of meritocracy ultimately, I think, is a very thin kind of politics and culture. Uh, it's a very bland kind of culture and politics. And you know, like Ruskin, I think that aesthetics is something of a portal onto ethics. Uh, and morality, uh, you know, if 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 something if something is bland, that's not a good sign. Uh, you know, it's it's more than just a kind of aesthetic flaw. There's there's something deeply wrong, I think, about a culture that produces such monumental blandness uh, from its you know from its meritocrats. You know, I've I've, I've long said this that I, I think that a lot when you look at a lot of say the memoirs of some of these meritocratic um, types, they're boring. They're really boring. Uh, you know, I mean, their, their, um, their aesthetic blandness is just breathtaking. Uh, and, uh, you know, even, even in, in, in as good a writer as, say, uh, Obama is, you know, when, when you look through, when you, I mean, I was reading through some of his, his latest uh, memoir, you know, just last month. And one of the things that struck me was <laughs> just how eloquently crafted, you know, you can make dishonesty and triteness. You know, he's, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's really quite the virtuoso, uh, at that. Um, and you know, I mean, this is, this is not to say that, you know, Obama himself is a bad guy. I'm sure he's, (laughs) I'm sure he's a wonderful guy in person. Uh, but, but when he's talking about some of the, some of the highlights of his political, uh, career and especially his presidency, it's, it's, it's very well crafted evasiveness uh and you know to the point where you know there's a there's a certain kind of um there's a certain kind of blandness here yeah well whatever whatever is going on in goya's capricious it's not uh it's not bland bland um, goya's you know goya is there's a, <laughs> that's that's uh, one of his biographers noted that um uh, watching others because he lost his hearing uh, and had to um, uh, during this illness that, that also sort of sparked this this change in his painting. Uh, watching others jabber soundlessly, Goya no longer took meaning for granted. Um, and then uh, the um, Julian Bell uh, says that uh, um, though the sort of you know doing social critique of the of you know the clergy in modern society was very in keeping with this kind of enlightenment um, sentiments, right? Uh, with that print series, the marksman started firing his shots in the air. Who could tell where and how among the unseen public they might land these baffling and indeed also baffled observations of human behavior. So began Goya's voyage away from located picture making. And I think with the, the memoirs that you're talking about, 
there are no shots fired in the air. Oh, <laughs> it's very, very clear uh, where, uh, you know, what the target is. And they, they hit it with unerring accuracy. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, yeah, the targets at which they aim are very easy ones. You know, I mean, it's usually, you know, low-hanging fruit um, that, you know, that they, that they go for. Uh, and, you know, the one thing, you know, you're, that you just mentioned made me think that, you know, where people are firing shots in the air is, uh, you know, very dangerous. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about the Capitol on January 6th. And, and the sort of reaction that I think a lot of these meritocrats had to it was a kind of, you know, uncomprehending shock. You mean there was this much anger and resentment and, and, uh, and, and malevolence out there? Yes, <laughs> there was. Uh, and, you know, it, you know and, it, and it might behoove you to think um, a bit more deeply about why that is. You know, one of the, one of the things that um, I think meritocrats have not, have not thought about, or maybe this is what they do think about and they know it all too well, is that they don't, they're, they're very averse, I think, to, uh, they're actually very averse to politics you know, and, and actually uh, averse to democratic politics. Uh, small d, uh, you know, democratic mm-hmm. politics. They they have this aversion, I think, to any kind of mass movement or any sort of political passion uh, because they see it as ignorant, uh, you know, or as insolent uh, and and as potentially violent in any way. And um, I think I think that meritocrats are very suspicious of this kind of politics uh, on the right or the left, uh, you know, for that matter. Because I think they're afraid that people really are figuring out that people are figuring out that they're getting screwed over and that they know very well who's screwing them over. It's the meritocrats, uh, you know, in, in, in the service of uh, in the service of corporations, uh, you know, end of end of the state. And um, they're very much afraid of people figuring this out and and demanding that at the very least that these meritocrats be much more democratically accountable uh, than, than they have been. No, I mean, I, you know, if you want to, you want to talk about the sleep of reason producing monsters, I mean, you know, you certainly, you certainly saw some of those, you know, monstrous apparitions at the Capitol on, on January 6th. Um, But it seems to me that again, a lot of the meritocratic response to this has been basically pretty shallow. Um, oh, these are a bunch of very malevolent people who are racists and, and, and they are right. I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any, there's anything to be gained by denying it, but one then has to start asking questions about, uh, you know, why is this, why does the response take this form? Uh, what, what can we do about it on a substantive level rather than simply wag our fingers uh, at, uh, at, at these people, how, how do you actually address their concerns seriously? So, so then you're taking the, the image as a portrait of our current age. Oh, very much so. I think, I think we're in a, we are in a very dangerous moment, uh, in mm-hmm. not, just, not just in the history of the United States, but, um, I know this is going to sound kind of galaxy brain, but I mean, I, I think we're at a dangerous moment in the history of the world uh, mm-hmm. because, because so many of these sorts of movements are, they're popping up all over the world. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're doing so at a time of 
uh, accelerating global warming. I don't like that term climate change because it's so anodyne. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's global warming. You're seeing it at a time, I think, of increasing class, uh, class resentment and, and class struggle, you know. And again, I don't like that term income inequality because it's so anodyne yeah. uh, and, and misleading. And this is intersecting, right, you know, with these, these, these revivals of all kinds of atavistic national, nationalist tendencies and, and racial, yeah. uh, you know. And that resentment is justified. I think that's, uh, it's a, I think, real, uh, Dream Hoarders is a Brooking scholar point out the ways in which sort of the top 20%, you know, there's a lot of focus on the 1%, but his argument is it's the top 20% of sort of the structure of how, our economy and our taxes and yeah. higher education, everything is organized in such a way to benefit the top 20%. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm saying that and agreeing with that as one of the people who's in the 20%, right? You, right. Know, you know, and I think, I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of academics like me don't like to talk about these issues because in what that would mean if there was a serious conversation is that we'd have to talk about ourselves, you know, I, you know, so so much of my comfortable academic life depends on the oppression and degradation of, say, Amazon fulfillment center and delivery workers. Uh, you know, um, I, and I think that's just become all the more clear uh, with the pandemic uh, and and the increasing reliance on on Amazon services. We're all implicated right. in this in 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 the twenty percent. But we don't like to we don't like to acknowledge that. I mean, beyond saying, yeah, you know, we're all complicit in it. Well, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> you know, it means that maybe you should order your books through the local bookstore now. Yep. I, I mean, I don't know if that would really, you know, really resolve, you know, much of the problem, but we would have to start changing our own behavior uh, in, in ways that um, I'm not entirely convinced we're ready to do. Do you see um, this sort of dangerous moment as a possible productive moment? Oh, yes. Very much so. Uh, I, I think that especially when I look at, uh, I mean, I'm heartened, but, you know, certainly by the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, even though, you know, okay, I could get technical and say Sanders wasn't really a socialist. He was a left populist, you know, and all this. I'm, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to get into that, but I think, you know, one way, one thing that, um, one thing I noticed, I've noticed during the pandemic was that people were talking about the, these times as apocalyptic, right? Mm-hmm. And usually people use that word in the sense of end times, right? Think things are coming mm-hmm. to an end or something like this. But I always thought that actually, when you look at the word apocalypse, that's not what it means. What, what, what apocalypse means is revelation. And, uh, and if, if you look at it that way, I think the last year has, yes, been very apocalyptic. It, it has been very revelatory uh, about so many things in this country and, and in this world. Um, you know, who can, who can deny uh, so much of, of, the, of the racism uh, and, and the misogyny and the class oppression on which so many of our institutional structures rest, it's clear as day now. Uh, and, and I think that one of the reasons I'm hopeful is that 
It's precisely when you see these things for what they are, uh, you know, rather than comfort yourself with a lot of uh, distractions or illusions, you, you know, you can actually start doing something about them. And, I, and, you know, and, and that's in conjunction with uh, something that I increasingly have seen among my college students uh, over the last, I would say, five to six years, which is this sort of really volatile combination of, of this kind of uh, meritocratic ideology that they come in with. But also, I think this, this uh, increasing and increasingly felt and visible sense that a lot of the meritocratic uh, ideology that they've been spoon-fed is not true. Uh, you know, the, the, these 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 kids aren't dumb. I mean, they 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 see their future and they don't like it. A lot of them, and I, frankly, I mean, I see part of my job as trying to give them, trying to get them to see and to to ask questions uh, about the present and the future. Uh, that um, I think in some ways they're already implicitly posing. Okay. Well, I think that's a, that's probably a good place to end. Um, it has been a real pleasure uh, chatting with you. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. And <laughs> out. may you continue to be a person. Remember, April 22nd, join us for a special live episode of Manifesto, a podcast with special guest Vincent Cunningham to discuss Pope Francis, Fratelli Tutti, and Jackie Sibley's Dury's play Fairview. Event held virtually through the Fairfield University MFA Program's Inspired Writers series. Details will be posted on our website. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>